morning, everybody. Oh, it's good to be here. Um, it was interesting. Uh, I always love when people come up and give words when they hear from the Lord and they step out in courage and faith. Um, so, Tina, thank you for doing that. And Matt, thank you for following up with that as well. And it really actually struck something inside of me when I heard that uh, particular word, something that is uh, a struggle for all of us particularly with wanting to have authentic community, is this question, are you willing to be known for who you really are? Because all of us, during different times, we just, we put on the mask we know everyone else wants to see. That mask got a big smile on it and the word fine written across it. Are you willing to be known and take it off for who you really are? And that can be daunting, that can be hard, because as Matt pointed out, there's nothing too great for the Lord, but we know there's a lot of people that don't have his level of grace. And it can be very concerning and fearful about how are other people going to respond to me. I know God accepts me and loves me and wants me and did all these wonderful things for me, but I really like this community. I'm afraid that they're going to look at me differently if they knew who I really was. I've endeavored a very long time ago to put the mask down and never pick it back up. And much to the chagrin of my wife on certain occasions, because I'm not always happy and graceful. You can ask any of my family during the event, different family events, and we come up and they'll run over to Emily, is Joe okay? Probably not. Um, it's just, it's hard. It's hard to be accepted for who you are. It's hard to be real all the time and not just give people the face they want to see. But part of that is actually good for you to practice for the very sake of this. If you want to grow in character, if you don't like what you see, if you don't like the sin that's exposed, then that's going to draw you closer to God to ask him to change it. Lord, I don't like this and I can tell everyone else doesn't like it either. Help me. Shape me, Lord. And that actually brings me to the very first thing I want to talk about today. When I was going through and studying this week and going through a book on leadership and was talking about this um, person who's helping different churches have good leadership functions, and a part of that, he spoke to one of the leaders in this church who had been there for years. And she said, I've been in the church for 70 years, and no one has ever asked me the question, how is your relationship with Jesus? Never once, not a single person in 70 years. How is your relationship with Jesus? And so that's the first question I'm starting today. How is your relationship with Jesus? It's so easy to get caught up in the doing and what needs to be done and the working on yourself and wanting to be a better person and all the things that go along with all of that. But how is your relationship with the Creator? the one who died for you that you might be able to have that relationship with him. The one who wants to walk with you every single day. The one that can change you, bring lasting change, bring forth his righteousness within you. How is your relationship with him? And I'm not talking about how often are you reading your Bible or how often are you on your knees in prayer. No, your life, your life with God. Every moment of every day, do you go to God? Because he's there. All of those difficult moments, is it 
just the humanity that cries out within you? Because it's so easy to do. Or is it, Lord, what do I need to do in this situation? God, help me. Is your cry immediately to your Father who's with you? Lord, lead me in this. I need you in this because I want to come out right now in this situation. And I need you, Jesus. How is your relationship with Jesus? We've been talking about Abraham. We've been seeing his relationship with God and the interesting things about this. And I want to encourage you, if you think that you're at a spot where God would never use you, he used Abraham and he used Sarah. He can use you. They are two extremely imperfect people that did very bizarre things, in my humble opinion. Um, But we've been seeing their life. We've been seeing what God has done with them. And Abraham is known as our father of faith. And I've always kind of wondered about that because I thought Abraham did a lot of things that were not very faithful. And that's actually the point. How is your faith in God? Do we actually believe he's going to do the things he said he'd do and that he is who he said he is? Faith has been the theme throughout all of this. And when I looked at this chapter this week, it's really talking about a measure of your faith. What person are you going to choose to be in this life? Are you going to be a person that walks with Jesus? Imperfect as you are, being sanctified little by little, day by day, till the day you meet him. Is that who you're going to choose to be? Or is God the person you go to only when things go wrong? We're finally reminded again, oh, I need Jesus. That's right. I'm not good at this by myself. Who are we going to choose to be? So with that in mind, holding on to that thought, we're going to hit Genesis 18. And just as a disclosure for next week, we are not going over Genesis 19. We are not skipping it. We are pushing it out a week. Next week is fifth Sunday. We're going to have a lot of kids in here. Genesis 19 is so not family friendly that I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have a bunch of children in here and talk about sodomites and everything they wanted to do. So we're pushing it out. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him, being Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him, When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So I've actually read the whole chapter. So I've got a little bit of previous information um, that we don't have quite yet, unless you've pre-read it. There's two things that are potentially going on here. Because if we looked at last week, God spoke to Abraham. He spoke to him about the covenant of circumcision, um, that circumcision isn't the covenant. It's the sign of the covenant. It's not, um, it's actually not God's ultimate purposes is the circumcision itself. And I thought about that word and we always tie it to that thing we do at eight days along with a young man's life. But circumcision just means to cut around. Circumcision, around and cut. And the true purposes of the Lord is to have a circumcision of our hearts to cut around our hearts. This is pointing to, alluding to the future thing that God is going to do in humanity. That's the purpose of almost everything in the Old Testament is what am I going to do then? 
I'm showing, I'm giving you enlightenment now. I'm pointing you towards this great event I'm going to do as your redeemer. But the ultimate goal is the circumcision of our hearts to make a new heart and a new spirit because very often we are told that we have a heart of stone, unfeeling, uncaring, all about self, me, and he wants to give you a heart of flesh, a new heart is his ultimate purposes. And he also promised Abraham a son in the last chapter. And Abraham's response to that was he fell on his face and he laughed and he thought, I'm old and my wife's old. What cruel twist of fate is that? That at 99, I'm going to have a baby. (laughs) For those of you that have had little children, babies, do you want to have them when you are 99? This is God's interesting sense of humor towards humanity. And so he laughs. This is his response. But he says, no, for sure, around this time next year, Sarah will give birth to a son. And that line is very specific because it's going to come up again. And when I crossed that this week, I thought, ha, how can he have two different encounters with the exact same phrase? Around this time next year, your wife will have a son, because that's going to show up in this chapter as well. There's two possibilities here. Either this was simply God speaking to him in the first account, and then he physically shows up in a very short period of time later, and Abraham's recognizing him, thus the running to him in the heat of the day. Or these are the exact same events, told from two different perspectives. Because the first perspective focuses on Abraham's response to what God is saying, to this promise, to this crazy thing. And the second one that we're going to go through now is going to focus really primarily on Sarah's response to this crazy thing that God is promising. It's not heaven or hell either way. It's just something to consider. Those little small details within scripture that illuminate what's going on a little bit more to us. So Abraham says to the, the three, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk in the calf, and then he prepared and set before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And it's interesting, we get all of that in three or four sentences, but that's actually not a quick thing that just happened there. So he asked them to sit down, they've been on a long journey, it's hot, it's the middle of the day, and imagine a time where you only have sandals. That's it, no closed-toed shoes, no boots, none of that sort, sandals. When you walk around in sandals, your feet get dirty, nasty, gross, and you're traveling paths that everyone else is with all of their animals and everything. And so when animals walk, they don't say, hey, can we pull over and go to the bathroom? <laughs> they just let it go. And so you're walking through all this. So people's feet got gross. So the offer of someone to come and wash their feet was just such a wonderful hospitable thing to do. Just imagine even when your feet are covered in mud and you get them all clean and how fantastic that feels. So this is the first offer. Let me bring someone to wash your feet, relax, be at your ease. And then he goes and he starts to prepare a meal. He's promised a morsel of bread. 
which is more of the idea of, let me go get the leftovers from breakfast, we'll have a snack together, I'll wash your feet, take a break, you'll be on your way. But that's not what happens. No, he says, go and get the fine flour and bake cakes. When actually I looked at the word for that, and it's their pancakes. Truly, they're going, so she's going to make this. All of a sudden, they, they smell the, that's, they're, they're starting to cook in there. And then you hear the, as the fat starts to sizzle on the pan, and then you, you smell the bread cooking, and oh, well, that sounds nice. And he, where's he going? And he's out to the herd, and he's getting a calf. And so a, when you take a calf, and it's tender and good, that's veal. From, and this is going to be for people that they're on the road. When you're on the road at this time, we don't have refrigeration. There's no packaging. There's no, they would have liquid nothing. It would be water. Maybe some dried fresh, fresh fish. Yes. Dried fish, nuts, maybe some stale bread. That's it. And so they're about to get veal. And t- getting a calf from the herd is not the same as pulling some meat out of the fridge or freezer. No, it would have been butchered. This would have been a process that had seen the whole thing. And then, I mean, even if they didn't butcher the whole thing, they cut the piece of meat they want, and then it's either barbecued or it's seared on a pan. And it's an experience of watching this be prepared for them. And then curds and milk. Remember, no refrigerator. This is day fresh. And so they would have had to have made the curds. And I didn't know what curds were. And I'd never, I mean, I'd heard the word before. I didn't know how you get them. You take milk and some sort of acid. And so that could either be vinegar or what was very likely, it's either going to be lemons or oranges, and it gives a nice flavor to it as well. And the moment you squeeze that acid into the milk, all of the whey proteins separate. And it turns into basically cottage cheese. And depending on what you use to do that would have flavored it. So this is what they're presented with. Fresh milk, co- flavored cottage cheese, pancakes right out of the pan, and seared veal. And they've been promised a morsel of bread. Abraham is a shrewd man in the best possible way. That word shrewd actually in ancient Hebrew was more of a compliment talking about someone who is wise, discerning, knows how to get a good deal, knows how to do the right thing at the right time. He's very shrewd because he's showing exceptional hospitality and the posture of a servant. He is not elevating himself. It's an attitude of humility. He's not saying, hey, let me prepare you a feast, claiming something's potentially more than it is. And it's actually some wisdom that we should take away when we encounter people. Jesus talks about this in Luke 14. He says, when you're invited by someone for a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may see you and say, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility and honor go hand in hand. When we tend to exalt ourselves, then it becomes God's job to humble us, and he's really good at doing that job. So if you humble yourselves, then God will exalt you. 
Just think about your relationships as well, the people you encounter, the people who are extremely humble, you want to encourage them. You want to build them up and like, no, you're great. I love you. You're amazing. It wasn't a little thing. It was a big thing. I really appreciate it. And you honor that person. But think about the person that comes to you and says, I am amazing. You should see what I did. <laughs> you kind of want to knock them down a peg or two. <laughs> so the wisdom is to present something as it is or with humility. Let me get you a morsel of bread. You are a, per a lordly individual. I don't know what you're used to. Maybe this is your morsel of bread meal, but maybe this is a feast. I'm, not, I'm gonna err on the side of caution here in what I do. And then his physical posture. Abraham is a wealthy, influential guy in the area. Leader of a large household, lots of flocks, hero in the land, save basically everybody. But what does he do? He presents himself as a servant, a servant before this individual who ends up being God Almighty. And what does he do? He makes sure that everything is cared for. He watches over it himself. And then when they eat, he doesn't sit down with them. He still stands in the shade. I mean, he's almost 100 years old. But he stands by their side in case they need anything. He doesn't share in the meal with them, but he might share in the conversation. He, his posture is that of a servant. Out of Hebrews 13, 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You never really know who you're dealing with, who you're working with, the people you come across. And you can present yourself in one of two ways. Either you can be kind and hospitable and generous and giving of yourself, or you can be known as the stingy, rude person. How do you want to be seen? How do you want to be remembered? And down the road, you encounter that person again. What is the memory you want them to have? Seeds of generosity, kindness, humility are never wasted. They might cost you something at the time, a little bit, but is it really that much that we can't be known as people of goodness, people of God's light in this world? They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, as happens with all women at the end, towards the ends of their lives. So Sarah laughed to her, saying, laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. What's interesting in this, when you look at the words and the, the actual meanings of it, when Sarah laughed to herself and she's behind the tent, that's not, she, that's not saying she just did it quietly. No, it's lit, quite literally inward. We're getting insight to a thought Sarah had. At most, she's smirking, but none of that is audible. She didn't chuckle out loud. It was all internal. It was just a, an amusing notion to her. And then this person outside knew exactly what had happened. And he says, is anything too great for the Lord? 
This is the first time we've seen that phrase in Scripture. You'll see it a couple more times as we go. But I wanted to pause on that before we address what happens here with Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I think when we're asked that question directly, most people will go, no. But do you live that way? Do you think that way? Do you think about people that way? Or is the first response, that will never happen? They will never amount to anything. God will never use me for that. Or is the response, well, if God wants it, that's the only way it's going to happen. You're saying the same thing, but one is an attitude of faith. You know, if God will move, then yeah. Otherwise, it would be unwise for me to pursue that. And we can give people advice this way. We can encourage this this way. When someone comes up to you, I'm thinking about doing this thing. And you know them. They're a starter, but they're not a finisher. And you think, don't, mm, don't do that. Is your advice, I think that's a bad idea. I don't think it's going to work out. We've seen this, 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 and this. It doesn't work this way. It's not going to be a good investment for you. Just don't do it. That won't work out. And you just go, pop the bubble. Or do you say to them, hey, we've seen this before. We've been here before. We've been excited before, right? Is God moving you there? Because if God's moving you, then yeah, that's going to be great. It is going to work out. Wisdom shows us that if he's not in it, we're going to have these results. Is he in it? The response is important. The way we think is important. The way we convey things to people is important. Because in that situation, not only do we have faith, but we're also pointing people to God. We're pointing them to deepen their relationship with the Lord, to go before him. Do we actually live with that idea, is anything too great for the Lord? And then we get Sarah's response here. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. She really didn't laugh out loud. For she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, imagine for a moment, Sarah. Now, let's look at her background. Sarah is never said to have the same faith Abraham does. Abraham's talking about having great faith. Abraham's the one hearing from the Lord. Abraham's the one being told to go. And she's married to, who might seem to her, crazy Abraham. Move me away from all of my family, everything I ever known, to this strange place surrounded by these strange people. Keeps telling me God's speaking to him. Wants to circumcise everybody now. (laughs) Now he's telling me I'm going to have a son. I'm 90. She isn't the one who's been said to have a lot of faith. And her response says that. What did she do when the promise of a son came along? She tried to scheme. All right, well, let's figure this out. He just won't let it go. (laughs) And so she encounters the Lord here, who says to her, no, you laughed. Imagine that. That doesn't happen. People don't read your mind. To be able in that moment when you had this inward conversation, someone immediately call you out on it, that doesn't happen. She's faced with God now. She's tested in her faith. How will she respond now? How will you respond now? 
when God suddenly speaks and you didn't expect him to? She's filled with fear. This is a terrifying moment. Particularly if the realization is dawned on, oh, Abraham's been right. How will we respond? We have to consider there are no idle thoughts before God. We are so used to having our private thoughts. They're not private. Out of Psalm 139, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. There is nothing that's hidden before the Lord. And God cares how you think about things. He cares about your reasons for doing things. God has not called you to just do and not change. If it was all about what you're doing then God would have praised the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He just said, they are the most amazing people on earth right now because look at all the things they're doing. But that wasn't what he said. No, he said they are whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but they are dead on the inside. There's an analogy talking about you have to clean the whole cup. You can't just polish the outside and make it look good. Because what happens when you drink out of that dirty cup? It's dirty on the inside still. The part that really matters isn't clean. We have to clean the whole dish. Because what happens actually when you start changing within? Do you behave the same? No, you quite naturally start to behave differently when your character changes, when your motivations change. You don't have to work on the doing, you just do it. Because what, what, what is within motivates you and changes you. So the encouragement is always, don't focus on the doing. Focus on allowing God to shape and mold you in his righteousness. And you will change. That's why James says, faith without works is dead. Because if we don't see it, we know there wasn't any change within you in the beginning, first place. It's a natural outcome of a changed heart. Matthew 15 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. This outward things needs to not be the focus. The focus is changing within and the outward things take care of themselves. And so in our passage, we hit a very natural break here. It's, quite, it's, a, it's peculiar because we're talking about the first portion of this and the last chapter about how we respond to what God says to us. Now the last half of this chapter is going to be how we respond to what God does. We're going to meet some really interesting things here, some big moments that really answered some questions for me, 
in a way I needed them to be answered as far as ways that I can answer questions that people normally ask. It's usually younger individuals talking about questioning the goodness of God, questioning his motivations. How could he, how could he, how could he? That'll make more sense as we dive into this. <coughs> then the men set out from there and they looked down from, towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I read that and I thought, that was nice. Why do we need, why is that given to us? Why were we given this insight to the God's mind? Because if we just actually jump to the next thing he says to Abraham, you don't actually need this portion, or it doesn't appear that we do. So why is it there? We should constantly be asking that question, why is it there? There are no accidental things in Scripture. And something occurred to me that this is an important moment. It's an insight for us to realize because Abraham's going to bless the whole earth. The whole earth is probably going to be asking these questions. It's kind of like a key word here. Hey, big moment. And just kind of a side note, God thinks. Ever considered that? We just assume that God is just almost like a computer or a machine that's programmed. It's just like, it's always this, it's always this. He thinks about things. God ponders things. God is actually a person. You are made in his image. God is relatable. He's both unsearchable and knowable is that there's things that he has revealed to us so that we can relate to him in some way. In the same way a father can relate to his children. The children are not going to fully understand the motivations of a parent. They just can't. But they can still relate. And that's what God desires for us. He's giving us small little insights into that, hey, you can know some of me. We can have a relationship here. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Two quick things. In your notes, it's going to say omnipotent, which is true, but it's not the right word I wanted to use. I wanted to use the word omniscient. Um, that omniscient is referred to in Isaiah 46 and Hebrews 4. Omniscience is all-knowing. Whether it is innate within him or he simply can stop time and look at everything, God knows everything. He knows every hair on your head, every star in the sky, all the dust upon the earth. He knows it all. He has the ability to discern the innermost parts of your thoughts. He is all-knowing. And he is also omnipresent. He can be in all places at once. He isn't all things, that's pantheism, but he can be in every place at the same time. All-knowing and everywhere. 
Why does he need to walk down to Sodom? Because that's what he's about to do. Why would he do that? Because he already knows. And we have to think about the rest of Scripture. Why does God send anybody when he already knows? There's always, always, always an opportunity for repentance. Always an opportunity. For those even in the most severe situations, they are given the opportunity to return to God. Because God does not enjoy suffering. God does not enjoy death. God does not enjoy pain. God wants everyone to live. Out of Ezekiel 18, it says, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. We don't serve a bully in the sky looking for someone to squish, looking for someone to mess up. We serve a loving father that wants his children to return. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is the immediate human response. How could you, God, do something that's not just? And many of you may have found yourself in that spot before. Some of you may be finding yourself in that spot now. Some of you may be talking to people that are in that spot. It's a common question. We're going to hold on to that for a moment because we have to remember who's asking the question of who here. How could you do what isn't just, Lord? And the Lord said, if I find Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Wait, what? <laughs> and then Abraham thinks about what he said, perhaps considers who he's talking to. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, just dust and ashes, and suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if, it had, if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there? He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. <laughs> Suppose 
10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is an honest question that a lot of people ask is, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Two big questions that normally get asked. They're not the only questions, but the most common question is, how could God possibly allow so much suffering in the world? And how could God just commit genocide and command genocide? How could he just wipe out all of these people? How could he do it? They're honest questions. And particularly that, how could you just, what about all the innocent there? Would you just kill all the innocent, Lord? And if we look at this passage, his response is, no, of course I wouldn't do that. And we have to let that sink in and really take what that means. That if there were any, any innocent there, he wouldn't do it. The implications of that, when we look at these accounts throughout Scripture, the innocent in every one of these situations, God removes. When he's going to go to Sodom, does he leave the innocent in the city? He gets them out. When they go to Jericho and they're about to begin the purge of the land, the innocent that are in the city, he gets them out. God doesn't do that. When we look at all, when we ask that question, how could you possibly allow all these terrible things to happen? And we look at this, and he's saying, I would let all those other people live for the sake of the ten righteous that they may live. I would let it continue so that they will have a chance to live. He's doing it for the sake of life, for the sake of those that do follow after him. But then there's the question of, well, I want you to be just still. I do want you to smite the bad guy. Smite him. He's bad. <laughs> and unfortunately, we desire this. We want God to punish the wicked. How can you allow this, Lord? It is, it's a, uh, I don't have a nicer way to say this. It's a childish response. It's very much Saturday morning cartoons. There are good guys and there are bad guys, and this is easy. The good guy, you, God, you get the bad guy. But we have to ask that question, can that bad guy be a good guy? Amen. God seems to think they can change, no matter what they've done. We, liked, we want to accept that for ourselves, but we have a really hard time accepting it for them. And it begs the question to us, how do we have the gall to question God? <laughs> this is presented to us in the book of Job. He actually says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Later on it says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Are you going to condemn God, Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, the one that holds all things together, because you've decided what's good and evil? Original sin. 
Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that you, your own right hand can save you. The statement is simple. If you think you can do better than me, then do it. And it calls us to realize we are the children in the story. We're not the father. We're not the one with perspective. We're not the one with the knowledge, with the understanding. We're the children. And that's hard to accept because you're not going to grow up. You are not ever going to be God's peer. It's never going to happen. You will always be the child. That can be very hard to accept, but it's still something that has to be accepted because God wants to answer the questions of his children, but we have to have the humility and the respect owed to the Father when we ask the questions. And we have to be humble enough to realize we may not understand fully the response because we are not God. A child may not fully understand the response their parents give them, and they just won't. There's nothing you can do. They just can't fully understand the motivations behind it. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it's a difficult thing because we want to understand and we see what feels like injustice in the world and pain and suffering. It could be things that happen to others. It could be things that happen to us. And it just doesn't seem fair, Lord. How can you allow this? How can you both marry yourself being completely just and merciful and desiring repentance? How do we bring those two together? How do I bring those two things together to understand, Lord? And the answer to that question is Jesus. He made a way for the debt to be paid, to give everyone a chance. To those that are here that are going to suffer, I have a future and a hope for you. In the light of eternity, I know it's hard now. It will be but a breath, but a moment, a blink of an eye. Hold fast to my promises. I came for you. I died for you. I rose myself up by my own power so that not only would you be free, but you would have hope. Jesus is the answer to this. Jesus is the way that God gets to be both just and merciful. Out of John 3, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you struggle with this, if you know someone who's struggling with this, these very deep, hard questions, the answer is Jesus. Draw close to Jesus. We're going to go back to the very beginning question. How is your relationship with Jesus? Because that's going to answer this question. Only through the love and the grace of the Father and the Son and the Spirit can you find peace through this. So draw near to Jesus. Strengthen that relationship with God. Ask yourself this question, who are you going to be? Would you stand with us?